you better put on your radio flak jacket because we're going to a place that looks a lot like Baghdad, a war zone with armored vehicles patrolling the streets, scenes of carnage, decapitations, torture, soldiers and police wearing black masks, and it's only just across the Rio Grande from El Paso in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. Welcome to Hearing Voices from NPR, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Scott Carrier, your guide. We here in the United States do have some responsibility for what's happening there because the violence is fueled to a large degree by our voracious demand for two things, cheap labor and illegal drugs. And then there is the very real and perhaps already present possibility that the violence in Mexico will spill over into the United States. Let's start with some background. Some stories produced in 2004 for NPR's day-to-day. This is how Juarez used to be before everything began falling apart on a major scale. From above, it looks like a city in a valley between two dry mountain ranges. A city all alone in the desert. But if you look closely, you can see where a river runs along the bottom of the valley, cutting the city in half. On one side, it's El Paso, Texas. On the other side, it's Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua. Two cities, two countries. At two and a half million people, it's the largest border community on the planet. You pay 25 cents to walk over the bridge, crossing from the United States into Mexico. You walk fast. No lingering in the gap. It's like the space between tectonic plates. Charles Bowden, who's written two books about the city, calls it an ecotone, a concept he borrowed from ecology, meaning a place where two habitats meet. If you get to the border, you have a third world country we call Mexico. You have the greatest industrial power on earth we call the United States, and they're rubbing against each other. And the border is violent, it's dirty. It's full of poverty. It's a depressing city, you know. But there's a part of it. You feel alive there. There's no rules. As you're accustomed to them, the police no longer protect you. They're the robbers. People have guns, but you don't know who they are. Anything could happen to you, and nobody would do anything about it. And not because you're an American, because you're a human. There are no empty moments in Juarez. Juarez has always been known for vice and violence, but starting in 1993, a new kind of violence came to town. Bodies began to turn up in vacant lots, out in the desert, and down by the river. Men who'd been tortured before being brutally murdered. Women and young girls, 12, 14 years old, who'd been raped and tortured before being brutally murdered. It seemed their bodies were dumped almost as a public statement. Julian Cardona is a photographer who worked for the Juarez Daily, El Diario, for most of the 1990s. I have seen the way, the way these people die. Extreme violence against their bodies, against their flesh. Extreme violence can be like a man burning for the the whole night in a fire made of tires looking like a Freddy Krueger body, with the body steaming still, or a, or a head exploded with Rano's AK-47 bullets being dumped in the desert. I have seen that. The dead men were thought to be, in one way or another, involved with the drug trade. The women and girls, however, were often workers in the maquiladoras, the assembly plants along the border. Sometimes they were prostitutes. Always they were poor and powerless. And these murders were not easy to understand. They seemed beyond evil, monstrous. Julian began describing some of the dead women he saw, but then he changed his mind. I would like to, this part of, of women be cut, not, not used. Why? I think it's more natural for a man to die. For a man. It's hard... It's hard to face when children or, or women die. And I, I, I must say, I re- deeply respect the mothers of the victims. 
They are very strong women. They have、uh, showed this big courage for fighting. They were stronger than men, for sure. So it's a matter of respect to to women. Not describing the way their bodies were found. Julian and about a half dozen other news photographers in Juarez were seeing these murder victims because part of their job was to listen to the police scanners and get to the scenes. But their photos weren't being published, and the papers weren't reporting the crimes, and the police were not investigating. So in 1995, Julian and the other photographers organized a photo exhibit of their work. Photos showing the murder victims, as well as the social conditions of the city, the maquiladoras, the drug trade, the poverty. According to Julian, they wanted to show the effects that power has on people. They called the exhibit "Nada que ver," nothing to see, and very few people came. And nothing happened until Charles Bowden saw the exhibit and wrote a story for Harper's Magazine. It came out in 1996 and was widely denounced as being untrue. But in 1998, Aperture magazine published a book of the photographs, with essays by Bowden, and this is when people started listening. Reports appeared in U.S. newspapers. Video documentaries were made. Amnesty International did an investigative report. But at this point, the story changed. It became a story about violence against women. It became a sex murder mystery, and there were many theories. Organ harvesters, sexual predators from the United States, producers of snuff films, the police themselves, drug-addicted Satanists, the sons of the wealthy who did it for sport, even the theory that the girls brought it on themselves by taking jobs and becoming independent and going out at night to party. Many theories, but after ten years, there's been only one conviction for the crimes, and still the killings and disappearances continue. Charles Bowden. People are interested in the dead women of Juarez because it's a way not to look at Juarez. If you say it's young girls, sixteen to eighteen, being killed by a serial killer or rich guys for fun or whatever, then you are, then you have a finite problem, and you don't have to look at the city, and you can ignore the fact that well, one to three hundred women have vanished, depending on who's counting. Twenty-eight hundred people have died. You can ignore the fact that seven hundred men have disappeared in the same period. You can just pretend that we the only problem in war is, is this bizarre slaughter of young girls, and then you're safe. You don't have to deal with the fact that this economic idea we had of border factories, etc., is a damn disaster that is killing people. That no one can live on the wages. That workers leave an American factory, spend two hours getting home to a cardboard shack, and they're working forty-four to forty-eight hours a week, and you wonder why they get violent. If you have questions about what the global economy will eventuate in, go to Juarez. The global economy, what we call the global economy, no tariff barriers, etc., has been running there since the late sixties. You got a forty-year record. And what it's produced is one of the most violent cities in the world. You're hearing voices, and this is Juarez, Mexico. Julian wants to check his email. He's got a photo show coming up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and he needs to write to the people there. So we're driving over to his aunt's house in the Barrio Alto, where he keeps his 15-inch powerbook. He can't leave it at his house because he's surrounded by an army of junkies who'd break in and take it. His aunt's house in the Barrio Alto is also surrounded by junkies, but someone's always home there. Julian says Juarez is full of gangs. Like, the Wall Street is full of gangs. There are 450 colonias, and maybe you can find、uh, three or four gangs in each colonia. A colonia is a neighborhood. The Barrio Alto neighborhood is like a very poor version of San Francisco. It sits up high on a hill overlooking the city. The houses are in a row, bright colors, 
flowers on the porch, razor wire on top of the walls. Julian is showing me how every two or three blocks the graffiti on the walls changes. And what does it say? Can this say Barrio Alto Brisa? You know, say Briseros. It means people from the Brisa. So this is their territory? Yes. Let's take a look at The territorial border lines are everywhere around us, cutting the neighborhood up into little boxes. But the lines are invisible to me. I can't read the graffiti, and the streets look just like neighborhood streets. Men and boys, little kids walking around, they don't look unfriendly. Uh, they are, their business is not assaulting you. Their business is different. Uh, what is their business? Well, they move drugs, you know. They sell weapons. I ask Julian if we can stop and talk to someone in a gang, and he pulls over and starts talking to a young man. ¿Qué tal? ¿Qué tal? Julian tells the guy we're reporters and just want to talk, and he says, okay. He's with two others, teenage boys. They're all clean and neat, wearing designer sweatshirts, baggy pants, basketball shoes. So where, where are we? The kid, his name's Ricardo, looks at me and says, we're the Cacos, Trenta, and this is our hangout. We have rivalries with the other gangs every day. Not long ago, the K-13 hit one of our dudes. They stabbed him in the stomach. Four or six months ago, they were driving by, and they shot me four times. Can you show me where you were wounded? He pulls up his shirt and shows us. Yo. He has four holes in the right side of his chest. So, are these bullet, bullet wounds? Yes. The bullet, the bullet came in here yes. and went out here? Yes. One of the other kids pulls up his shirt, and his scar is even worse. Yeah, what happened to you? What, what is that? I mean, it's a long, it's a, you got a five-inch long scar running vertically above your belly button up toward your sternum. What happened? They were walking, and a car was passing by, and he was shot. The, the bullet is still in his body. It's still in there? Yes. But is it common for young men who grow up here to be shot? Why are other people shooting you? What what was their motive? To defend the barrio. To defend the barrio. Mm-hmm. But why? What's what's to defend? That's a it's a Mexican style from Los Angeles, from the United States, maybe. This guy has just joined the group. He's older, missing some teeth. What's what's your name? Robert, Robert Ramirez. And you live here in this barrio? Mm-hmm. Is the, the violence, is the fighting over drugs, is that what it's about? Or Over drugs, no. It's for the barrio. Huh. For the honor, you know. Honor. Mm-hmm. You got honor. This, this is your, your, uh, your place. So you defend your, your, your area. Hmm. Do you, you got guns? Better. <laughs> What kind of guns do you have? A mm, lot of guns. Rivals and pistols. What we got? Julian asked them if they know the people they're shooting. And Ricardo says, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Several are already dead. Whether we know him or not, if the guy's hanging out in our barrio, then we get him. If we know him, even better. Ricardo is 28 years old, but looks 20. Doubly surprising, because he says he was a heroin junkie for 13 years. A habit that cost him 60 to $80 a day, more than a week's pay in Juarez for honest labor. He says... I'd rob businesses, hijack cars, go inside stores and rob the people, or assault people who came by. Did everything. I was combining heroin and cocaine and shooting them. You need every day more and more. Your bones get all fragile and you feel like an old man. A lot of people here die by combining heroin and pills. They turn purple and die. I just wanted to get out of it. No more stealing, no more screwing around. We tell the guys thanks, and they say no problem. We get back in the car and drive down the hill to Julian's aunt's house. 
So we have been in Barrio Alto Chavez, we have been in Cacos 30, we have been in Leones, we have been in K13, we have been in La Brisa, in five gangs less than 10 blocks. Yeah, less around. than a, a square mile. This is how it is in the Barrio Alto, and the Barrio Alto is a good neighborhood in Juarez. Julian could leave if he wanted to. He's got other relatives and a bank account in El Paso. He could live over there, two miles away, in suburban safety. He stays in Juarez because this is his home. These are his people, and to leave would be a desertion. We park outside Julian's aunt's house, and he goes in to send an email to Chapel Hill. I sit in the car and lock the doors. This is an assembly plant owned and operated by Delphi, the world's largest maker of auto parts, used to be part of General Motors. It's a big open room, large enough to house a 747. 400 workers operating machines that drill holes, fuse wires, seal plastic, making turn signals and brake sensors for cars and light trucks. The place is clean and well-lit, air-conditioned, like a factory you'd expect to see in Ohio or Michigan. Only this one is in Juarez, Mexico, and here it's called a maquiladora. There are a couple hundred maquiladoras like this one in Juarez, employing over 100,000 people. American, European, and Japanese companies have located here because labor is cheap, and the Mexican government has, for the past 40 years, allowed a free trade zone along the border. Materials are brought in from the United States, assembled into products in the maquiladoras, and then the products are exported back to the U.S. with little or no tariffs. Over the years, millions of Mexicans have migrated from small farms in the south to come to work in the maquiladoras on the border. Sociedad Diaz is communications manager for Delphi, Mexico. A lot of people come here in search of the American dream, you know, being able to cross the border and going on to, to look for that American dream somewhere in the U.S. And um, a lot of people have to stay back. Uh, a lot of people prefer to stay here. And the maquiladores can provide employment without having to lose their culture, lose their or go on to look uh, to work in an area in, in a country where they don't speak the language, they don't have the culture. Um, you know, maquiladoras are clean, safe places where people can have a safe job. They, they provide opportunities for people who, who want to take them. The place that's not safe, however, is the place where the workers live. Much of Juarez is comprised of neighborhoods that look like scenes from a Mad Max movie, squatter settlements built on sand dunes where entire families live in 10 by 15 foot shacks made from wooden pallets covered with cardboard and tar paper, metal bars over the windows and doors. Gangs rob and steal and kill. Young girls disappear. Sometimes whole neighborhoods go up in flames. Many of the homes have no sewer connection. Many of the roads are not paved. For whatever reason, the city, state, and federal governments have not been able to meet this challenge. And then there's the problem of the low wages. The maquiladoras pay about $40 to $55 for a 48-hour work week. That's about a dollar an hour, which is about twice the minimum wage. But living expenses along the border are nearly what they are in the U.S., and so a dollar an hour is a starvation wage. And now, even this low wage is no longer competitive. People in China and Southeast Asia are working for a quarter an hour. Over the past three years, 30% of the border factories have moved overseas. A hundred plants closed in Juarez alone. You could say that what Juarez is going through is just growing pains. In the past 10 years, economists say, Mexico has brought in over $130 billion of foreign capital. A $1.3 billion trade deficit with the United States has become a $47 billion trade surplus with the United States. Overall, the Mexican economy has never been stronger. I asked Charles Bowden about these studies, 
He's written two books about Juarez, both critical of the maquiladora industry and free trade in general. I asked him why he thinks free trade in Mexico is so bad when the Mexican economy is doing so well. It's a lie. It's a lie. Good God, if it, why don't you ask the real question? If the economy's doubled or tripled, why are people poorer now than before that happened? I mean, you know, what do you want, drugs? I mean, how can you triple an economy? And by every indices of the Mexican government and our own, the people are worse off in Mexico than we were before we agreed to NAFTA. It's been 10 years. We're causing a flight to the United States as we destroy the countryside, meaning these small peasant farmers can no longer compete. You go out there and they're ghost villages. Everybody's in Chicago or Los Angeles to stay alive. No, it's, it's, it, what's going on in Mexico now is the largest folk movement on earth. That you're not seeing people coming up to pick apples for a summer job. What you're seeing is an exodus, like of biblical terms. That Mexico is collapsing, and any sane person's going to get out, and they are. They're coming north to survive. You don't find. 16-year-old girls with one-month-old babies walking through 50 miles of hot southwestern American desert as a lark. And those kind of people are moving. They don't have any choice. If they stay where they are, they won't survive. This is a different world on the border now. And that's part of the violence that's suddenly occurring because they're desperate to get out. They're trapped like rats. From inside the Delphi assembly plant, you can't see how bad things are outside. The workers here have new clothes, new shoes. Delphi has programs to help its employees buy their own homes, programs to help them finish their high school and even college education. The Delphi Corporation, however, can't solve Mexico's problems. It can't even raise its wages and still stay competitive in the world market. In the end, Perhaps the most valuable thing that Delphi gives its workers is hope, even the false hope that their lives are getting better. You're listening to Hearing Voices. We're back in a minute with more from Juarez, Mexico. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. You're hearing voices. I'm Scott Carrier, and this week we're taking a close look at a city on the verge of losing its soul, Ciudad Juarez. The stories you hear in Juarez are hard to believe, even shocking, but when you leave, they're surprisingly easy to forget. This is a quality the city has. Some cities are known for seafood, some for air pollution. Juarez is easy to forget. When you're there, you're just shaking your head in disbelief. When you go home, it's all gone. I was there for two weeks, and every day I rode around with Julian Cardona, the photographer. It was tough, because Julian is a man who sees everything, and he grew up in Juarez. I was seeing it for the first time. Julian believes the purpose of photojournalism is to show the social effects of power. His photos are like scars, things you carry with you. People will be looking at his photos 200 years from now, and they'll have the same scar. In his bag in the back seat were two Leicas and two lenses worth 16 times as much as his car. For two weeks, the bag was never out of his arm's reach, and yet he never took a picture. That became my job. It was his city, and he was showing it to me, and the camera was in my head. He was okay with this because there are things his camera can't record, like the things people say. There was a woman we went to see late, at night, Evangelina Arce. We looked for a house for over an hour, driving around the barrio. When we found her, she was outside sweeping her porch. She said she was tired and didn't really want to talk. 
but Julian said something that made her change her mind. I don't know what it was. I think maybe she just trusted him. She was 55 or 60, small, four foot eight, wearing a Mickey Mouse sweatshirt. She sat on the couch, staring at the floor, telling us how her daughter disappeared. Her daughter, Sylvia, was last seen outside a bar downtown getting into a car with some federal police. But the local police, she said, didn't investigate. After four years of waiting, she started speaking out in public and in the media. After that, she said, three men attacked her on the street. The 30th of April, they hit me when I was downtown. I came out of the offices of the Commission for the Protection of Human Rights, and they pushed me and I landed against the wall. A man driving by yelled at the attackers, and they ran away. But after this, Evangelina said, men started sitting outside her house in trucks. She started to get threatening phone calls. I don't go out alone. I don't walk alone. I'm fighting for justice, but the government is deaf to our claims. They hear us like we're dogs barking. Like Evangelina Arce, Lorenza Benavides de Magaña also had a member of her family disappear, her brother-in-law, who was a comandante in the state police. One day he answered his door, got into a car with some men, and never came back. That was ten years ago, and still, every day, Senora Magaña's mother-in-law asks her, Have you heard anything? What do you think happened to him? Senora Magaña said she thinks he was killed, but without a body, there's no way to be sure. She'd heard some terrible stories about what happens to the bodies. The stories they tell us are quite frightful. They talk to us of crushing machines. They've taken us to the cement factories and where they make cold cuts. They talk of acids or how the bodies are slowly burned in gasoline until there's nothing but ashes. We also hear that their bodies are sandwiched in the walls of mansions downtown. So many ways to tell us that their bodies will never be found. When somebody disappears, it's as if they were swallowed by a black hole or they were taken by UFOs or who knows by whom. They disappear into oblivion. Sergio Dante Amaraz Mora is a high-powered defense attorney in Juarez, a brave man. We were in his office, and he started telling us the names of the men who killed his law partner, high-ranking officials in the Chihuahuan state government. He said they were the same men who tortured his clients into confessing to murder. When they were brought forward into the courtroom, I saw they had been brutally tortured, terribly tortured. And I asked the judge, I said to the judge, listen to me, sir, put the injuries of these men in the record. My client had a protruding, swollen area where he had been kicked. It was purple and green with dried blood on it. His penis had been burned by electricity. The other client, the one nicknamed El Foca, had 10 centimeters of his intestines coming out of his anus because of the force of the electricity applied. I asked the judge to put these injuries in the public record. Initially, the judge denied me, saying there was not enough light to see. Can you imagine a courtroom, any courtroom, where there isn't enough light to see? Amarez gave us the names of the men responsible, and I asked him if he really wanted us to play these names. And he said, I think they must pay. I feel that these crimes they've committed are against humanity, and they must pay. But I'm not going to play the names. It would be an exercise in futility, and somebody might get killed. An exercise in futility, like taking pictures without any film in the camera. As you look, you learn the government publishes fiction. The newspapers lie. People are afraid to speak. Official records are not kept, or they're lost, or there never was an investigation to begin with. I can't confirm anything these people told us. All I can say is, it's what they told us. Also, there is a common belief in Juarez that their system of justice is like a pyramid, where the people on top have impunity to do whatever they like, get away with murder, while the people on the bottom have no rights at all and can just disappear into thin air. 
Maybe none of it's true. Maybe these stories are exaggerations or exceptions that play into stereotypes of the corrupt Mexican. There is, after all, violence and corruption in American cities. Even in my neighborhood in Salt Lake City, a 14-year-old girl was abducted from her home. There is a difference, however, between the violence in Juarez and the violence here, and it's that in Juarez, there's no hope the perpetrators will be caught and brought to justice. Charles Bowden spent seven years researching and writing a book about crime in Juarez, and he describes it this way. Everything that happens in Mexico goes through three phases. First, there's a thing that happens. Then secondly, people create fantastic stories explaining what happened. The third phase is always the same. It never happened. The stories you hear in Juarez are hard to believe, even shocking. But when you leave, they're surprisingly easy to forget. The city has this quality. There's an onion. You keep peeling it to get at the center. And when you get to the center, there's nothing there. Nothing at all. And you're left with this disorderly heap of peelings that now denies even the idea that it was once an onion. You've been listening to stories about Ciudad Juarez, produced in 2004 by Julian Cardona and myself. A couple of years after those stories aired, the lawyer who spoke to us in that last story, Sergio Dante Almaraz, he was murdered in his car. He was sitting in his car behind the wheel at a stoplight a block off Benito Juarez Avenue. Four o'clock in the afternoon, long shadows growing down the street. On one side of the street, there's a pharmacy. On the other, there's an abandoned building used by heroin addicts as a shooting gallery. Along the wall of this building, there are torn and faded posters of men in masks and capes ads for a lucha libre Mexican professional wrestling I wonder if he sat here waiting for the light to change looking at the posters or maybe the posters were why he drove this way to pick up his wife after work maybe he came this way to remember when he was young in Mexico City going to law school by day and battling the forces of evil by night as Sergio El Hermoso Sergio the Beautiful He knew he was going to die. He told his brother his days were numbered and asked him to take care of his two small children. His brother asked him, Why don't you leave? Cross over while you still can. And Sergio told him, I am a lawyer. I practice law in the state of Chihuahua, Mexico. This is who I am. So don't ask me that question again. I met him once for an interview late at night in his office near the jail. That was three years ago. At that time, he was defending a bus driver who'd confessed to raping and killing eight young women and burying their dismembered bodies in a vacant field by the factories. In the beginning of the case, there had been two bus drivers who'd confessed to these crimes. And in the beginning, Sergio had a law partner. Sergio and his partner brought the bus drivers into court and showed the judge where they'd been beaten and tortured. They showed dried blood on the legs, bruises around the groin where the electrodes had been attached, four inches of intestine hanging out of an anus. The judge responded by saying there wasn't enough light in the courtroom to see. Sergio and his partner believed the bus drivers were being scapegoated by the district attorney and the governor of the state of Chihuahua in order to protect the real killers whom they believed were members of the Juarez cartel. They made these beliefs known in public by speaking to the press and to anyone who'd listen. Not long after that, Sergio's partner was gunned down by state police in a car chase through downtown Juarez. Then one of the bus drivers died in jail under mysterious circumstances. Sergio was threatened, told he'd be killed in the same way as his partner. In 2004, there were state elections, and Chihuahua got a new governor and district attorney. Also, the remaining bus driver was found innocent and released from jail. 
victories for Sergio, but he didn't shut up because nothing had really changed. The justice system was still corrupt. The car pulled up alongside Sergio on the wrong side of the road, to his left, blocking his view of the wrestling posters. I wonder if he knew the man pointing the 9mm automatic pistol at him. I wonder if he spoke before 10 bullets flew into his head, neck, and chest. I wonder if he said, My name is Sergio Dante Almaraz, and I practice law in the state of Chihuahua, Mexico. In 2008, there were over 1,600 gang-style executions in Juarez. Shortly after Mexican President Felipe Calderón took office at the end of 2006, he declared war on the drug cartels that had taken a stranglehold on his country. Calderón started sending troops to different parts of the country, and in March of 2008, he sent 3,000 soldiers to Chihuahua, most of them to Juarez. The decision to send soldiers to fight the drug war was widely supported by the Mexican people, who were tired of living with corrupt police, corrupt judges, corrupt everything, and impunity. No punishment for violent crimes, murders, rapes, carjackings, kidnappings. The bad guys always got away. The troops arrived, but still, things got worse, much worse. Bodies started showing up in public places with lists of names of others who would be killed, including high-ranking police officers. The police became afraid to go to work. Kidnappings, carjackings, extortions, all increased to record levels. The troops patrolled the streets and camouflaged armored vehicles mounted with high-caliber machine guns, soldiers riding in the back wearing camouflaged battle gear, helmets, flak jackets, knee pads, scenes that looked like Baghdad. The army could have driven their armored vehicles to the drug lord's houses. It's no secret where they live. And yet, no drug lords have been arrested in Juarez. Instead, the army, together with federal, state, and municipal police, have focused on poor neighborhoods. Josefina Reyes Salazar lives in Guadalupe, a village just outside Juarez. It was 4.30 in the morning, Sunday, the 9th of June. The army broke into my house, breaking down doors, breaking things, turning over mattresses, the cabinets, everything, and even stealing things. They had on blue clothes. They wore round helmets and blue or black clothes with masks. They had no search warrant or arrest warrant. They arrived, beat up the family, beat the men, and they took one member of the family away. I want to tell you that it wasn't just at my house. There were around 30 houses where these kind of events happened. From March to mid-June of 2008, the Attorney General's office in Juarez received 50 complaints against the Army, complaints accusing the military of such things as forcibly disappearing citizens and torture by electric shocks and simulated suffocations with plastic bags. Many people we spoke with in Juarez believe the Mexican military was directly involved in some of the executions that had taken place in their city because of the way they happened. The assassins, they say, arrive in SUVs with shaded windows and no license plates. They wear black clothes and black ski masks and carry automatic rifles and pistols. People say they position themselves around their target in disciplined and practiced maneuvers. They're careful and precise in their aim, and yet they show an excess of force, using dozens of bullets to kill a person. These armed commandos are said to travel the city at night, when the streets are empty, without being pursued by the military. So, the reasoning goes, they must be from the military. On August 13th, at a drug rehab center in a poor part of the city, 30 recovering drug addicts were attending a prayer meeting led by Socorro Garcia, an evangelical preacher. She was there, and she survived to tell the story. It was a normal day, a Wednesday like any other. 
And every Wednesday we went to the center and we would sing and preach. There were young people, sometimes 13 or 14 years old, and there were also very old people, 60, 62 years old. I told them, muchachos, you need to turn to God. Is there someone brave enough to accept Christ into your heart? Is there any one of you here who was a Christian in the past but who fell away into drugs and who would like to reconcile with God? All of a sudden you could hear a whole lot of gunshots. Four armed men entered the room, shooting and shooting. They were dressed like soldiers, like military men, and they wore bulletproof vests and their black ski masks, their shoes, all of it like military gear. And one of them kept looking at me. I looked into his eyes, and he didn't shoot anymore. I don't know why he stopped shooting, because I was right there in front of him, and one more life would have meant nothing to him. But he didn't shoot. Then, when everything was over, when the men went away, I grabbed my purse and it was full of blood, all the blood that had come from the dead kids. The coroner's report said eight were killed and five were wounded at the rehab center that day. Two Juarez papers the next morning reported eyewitness testimony that a group of seven or eight men wearing the uniforms of a special Mexican army unit, the Red Berets, had parked about 50 yards away from the massacre site but did not come to the aid of those being attacked. The Mexican army officially denied any involvement in the crime. There are many questions. Were the assassins perhaps hitmen wearing army uniforms? After all, why would the military stand by while armed commandos kill a bunch of poor, recovering drug addicts? Charles Bowden, author of Down by the River, has covered the drug trade along the border extensively. He says in Juarez, you don't get answers to these kinds of questions. It is possible to the people that killed the people in the drug rehab center were impersonating the military, but there's no reason for them to do it. You don't have to have a costume to kill people. You can speculate why you would slaughter people in a rehab center, but you drift into fantasy land. You say, oh, maybe they were selling drugs. You say, oh, maybe they were hiding gang members. You say they must be dirty or they wouldn't be dead. But in fact, you don't know anything. The only thing you ever get to know in war is, if you're lucky, are the names of the dead. You don't get to know who killed them. You don't get to know why they were killed. Bowden says people in Juarez have come to accept violence in their city like they accept the dust that fills the air whenever the wind blows. They breathe it in and move through it, because what other choice do they have? Juarez is, like Mexico, is a series of gangs. There's a city police gang, there's a state police gang, there's a federal police gang, there's the army, a separate gang, and then there's 500 independent gangs, and then there's the cartels. And so what you get is a society that's disintegrating, fighting for a piece of the pie. And in the crossfire, the Mexican people get slaughtered. That's the situation in Juarez today and in much of Mexico. You're hearing voices. If you ask people in Juarez what's causing the terrible violence in their city, almost all of them will tell you it's a war between two rival cartels over the control of the drug market, or plaza, as they say. This is the same explanation given by the Mexican government and by nearly every news agency. It's an easy explanation to accept, and it implies a solution. Eventually, one cartel will defeat the other cartel, and the killing will stop. But if you keep talking to people in Juarez, ask them more questions, you come to realize that when they say drug cartel, for them, this term also implies the government, the military, big business, small business, the justice system, and the media. They've come to accept that the billions of dollars that come from the drug trade have corrupted all phases of their society, and that because of this, their society is falling apart. This guy works pumping gas at a beep-beep convenience store on one of the main boulevards in Juarez. Have you seen any violence personally? Have you seen any? Yeah, every day. What have you seen? Well, not, not too long ago, I see somebody kill an, an old man with uh, eight bullets behind right here. Behind the pizza place? Yes, sir, behind this place. 
Eight bullets. Eight bullets in the head. Why do you think he was killed? And being in the wrong place in the wrong time and doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing. Because I believe they was involved in drugs and they they they, they, they fighting for uh, piece of land or how do you say territory? Or I don't know. Back in the good old days, about ten years ago, billions of dollars of illegal drugs moved through Juarez on their way into the United States every year, but they weren't sold locally because the drug lord in Juarez at that time, Amado Carrillo, wouldn't allow it. He was protecting his people, but after he died in 1997, things changed. Cocaine and heroin and methamphetamine began to be sold and consumed in Juarez on a large scale. Do you think that a lot of people in Juarez now are using the drugs? Is Uh, is that always... 99% of what? Anything. Gasoline, dinner, marijuana, crack... Amphetaminas, LSD, uh, you name it. Young people, old people, it doesn't matter. And wait till the next generation, it will be worse. Ten years, and it will be more killings and more violence. Because now young people start learning, seeing, and they say, oh, this is a way of life. So when I'm going to grow up, I'm going to have a big truck, I'm going to kill somebody, I'm going to go sell drugs, The local distribution of these drugs was and is controlled by street gangs, of which there are estimated to be more than 500 in Juarez. Gang members take drugs, they sell drugs, and they kill people, mainly members of other gangs, but also people who get in their way. Many of the young boys who join these gangs have parents who work in maquiladoras, American assembly plants, where they make about a dollar an hour. Juarez is part of the global economy, the part where the workers earn poverty wages and live in houses made of wooden pallets and cardboard. Clara Torres is a lawyer and social worker in Juarez. What is happening in Juarez is that we are paying the price for what we have failed to do when we transformed this city into a maquiladora city here on the border. We generated jobs and we attracted a lot of immigration from the rest of the country, but we didn't give them the conditions to make a better life for their families. We didn't invest in social infrastructure, schools, parks, child care centers, all of the things that are needed to create citizens here in our city. When we take the mother out of the home and put her in the labor environment, the kids are left alone and exposed to these pushers who begin to give them drugs to turn them into addicts. And once they become addicts, this is their captive market. Jose Antonio Galvan is a street preacher in Juarez who runs a rescue mission for recovering drug addicts many of whom have been in gangs. The cradle of the criminals in all the world and in Juarez is the gang, where they begin to select the most soulless, the cruelest ones. There they begin to grow. Leaders are born amongst these young assassins, sometimes at an early age of 13 or 14, They have already killed five or six people. In the media and in the TV shows, they're making these grotesque novellas, soap operas, that teach how a narco-trafficker can live a luxurious life with the most beautiful young women, new cars every year, excessive luxury. And so our people who live in extreme poverty, living in cardboard shacks, who have so many needs, who are hungry, young people, who have nothing, they're being motivated and fed by these diabolical lies. They're being taught to kill and live their life rapidly, like mist, because the life of a narco-trafficker is very short. A surprising thing about Juarez is that in spite of the violence, people get up in the morning and go to work. In a city of one and a half million, life goes on. The boulevards fill up with traffic, The stores open on time. Everyone in Juarez is moving, doing something, because in this city, you gotta work to stay alive. It's always been like this. Juarez has always been a city of immigrants, people coming from all over Mexico and Latin America to find work. The difference is now, the people are afraid all the time. Soledad Borja works as a cleaning lady in Juarez. Pues terror, terror, porque es demasiada la violencia. 
It's too much, the violence. Day after day, seven, ten dead, eight, five people killed. Everyone says the same thing. Everyone is talking about it. That you can't go out on the streets safely because you can be shot anywhere without deserving it, without knowing where it might come from. No one can stop it because organized crime has overcome the government. It's now more powerful than the government. Only the power of God can stop this, what is happening here. Only the power of God, the all-powerful. This is another thing people in Juarez will tell you. They don't see how this current wave of violence will come to an end. It's hard for us here in the United States to conceive of this. It would mean that our social order had fallen apart. And that's just what it's like every day for people in Juarez. You've been listening to Juarez, Mexico on Hearing Voices. The last two stories were produced by Julian Cardona, Scott Carrier, and Lisa Miller, edited by Deborah George. Research and translation by librarian Molly Malloy at the University of New Mexico, Las Cruces. Thanks also to Aaron Almiranti, KUER in Salt Lake City, and to Charles Bowden. You can find more stories and photos on our website, hearingvoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is HearingVoices.com.